On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Brooke. And Brooke was in a 10-year toxic relationship with a Peter Pan-esque abuser. It's a story of generational trauma, triangulation, stonewalling, physical abuse, and determination. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Brooke. How are you? I'm well, Brandon. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. We chit-chatted a little bit there. And if people want to be a guest just like Brooke is today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. It takes you to that page. You read all the instructions on that page, and then you either send me an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or just fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And Brooke didn't find me through there. You found me through Instagram, correct? I, I sure did. Absolutely. And then I sent you to the website, and then you, you, you um, filled everything out perfectly. And, Thank you. <laughs> and today we are going to talk about your 10-year relationship, which eventually turned physical. So a big trigger warning to everyone who is listening. There is physical abuse in this story. And you eventually came to understand that your ex-partner was a Peter Pan-type character, which we'll talk about in your story. But also your story is about generational trauma. And it's not just about your generational trauma, but it's also about his generational trauma as well. So I really want to thank you for being here today, Brooke, for sharing your story. And now, without further ado, Brooke, the floor is now yours. So my story is not just my story. Wow, I wasn't expecting to get emotional already. <laughs> My story is a bunch of stories put together um, from my parents, their parents, and their parents before them. I want to first tell you about how two people that were born in two different islands in the Caribbean with about an hour's travel difference between them both. Grew up in parallel universes without even knowing that they would one day meet and kind of like pass on some of the traumatic things that they experienced. So my parents come from the Caribbean from very abusive families and histories. Um, my father was born in Puerto Rico. His mother suffered from bipolar disorder, depression, schizophrenia. His father rejected him nearly from birth. When my father was two, he lost his mother violently. Um, I was never and still have not been able to get down to the truth, whether she was murdered or if she 
committed uh, suicide. But the story that I had heard was that she died in fire. Um, she possibly set herself on fire or set the home where they were living at on fire. And then later on in life, um, the speculation that it was my grandfather due to the fact that he suspected that she was um, unfaithful in their marriage. When my dad was two, he was sent over to the States on a one-way ticket to New York City where he never saw his father again. He stood with an aunt and two cousins who did their best to raise him as their own. My father didn't pass the sixth grade. He quickly became affiliated with the many gangs that were very prominent during those times. When my dad was 17 years old, he took a man's life and he ended up spending 19 years in jail. He never once saw his father. According to what my father had said, no one came to visit him. And it's sad to know that a boy, he lost all his years behind iron bars, concrete walls. So my dad was released in the late 70s. And he met my mom, I want to say about four or five years after, after he was released, more or less. So I'm just going to jump back to uh, my family history once again and discuss my mom. My mom was the second born to a teenage mom who herself was abandoned by her mother. So my great-grandmother abandoned my grandmother when she was an infant. My grandmother was raised by my great-great-grandmother in a very poor, poor portion of the Dominican Republic. They were very strict. And in those times, it was common to, you know, spare the rod, spare the child. There was no sparing of the rod for either one of my parents. My mom didn't actually go to first grade until she was uh, 10 years old. She didn't grow up with my grandmother. My grandmother went about her life. Um, she went to the Capitol, which was very common in those days where people would leave their children with family members just so that they can go earn a living in a more developed portion of their country. And then they would send back money, you know, to help support the children. But my mom was taken away from her great-grandmother, my great-great-grandmother, because uh, she had suffered um, Alzheimer's. She was developing Alzheimer's rather quickly, um, which, of course, then led to dementia, where she was claiming that she was seeing things and hearing things. And the police had told um, my grandmother's family that if my mom wasn't going to be placed in school, that it was a crime. And that she would, um, they would take her and she would be um, custody of the state. So a family members intervened. And by the time my mom was eight years old, she was living with a distant aunt and her husband. And that's when my mother uh, started experiencing physical abuse, um, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. She told me things like that they wouldn't feed her 
until she was behaving good. My mom really didn't have an education. My grandmother had other children throughout the following years. And then when my mom was 18, my mom came to the United States with the rest of her siblings after my grandmother had established a home and everything else that, you know, you need in order to have your kids with you. I want to say maybe 78, 79. My mom still hasn't told me how she met my dad. I'm not sure if she feels ashamed or maybe she just doesn't want to relive those memories. But um, my parents met and within the year I was conceived. My mom said that my dad was extremely charismatic. So did my grandmother. And shortly after I was born, my mom stated that the uh, complexity of their relationship started to change. She started to see how verbally abusive my father became, um, how he would reject her um, sexually, emotionally, mentally. And I don't have many memories as a kid. Um, my memories aren't vivid prior to the age of eight. My first memory is the first time I saw my dad get violent with my mom. She, uh, she was working. My father had lost his job. My younger sister was still in diapers and we were at home with him. My mother came home. He had accused her of drinking and um, having another man. And my mom... I guess she was already used to it. She just, in her own way, stonewalled him, <laughs> walked right by him and muttered something. And then I just remember the sound of things breaking. The, the smell of broken light bulbs. Almost smells like when your light bulb kind of like burns out. <laughs> And I just remember seeing my father pick my mother up by her neck and pin her up against the wall. And my mother trying to scream, call your grandmother. And at the time, we had rotary phones. We didn't have the ones with the keypads, though, I think. And I remember calling my grandmother. I remember telling my grandmother in Spanish to please come that daddy was hurting mommy. I don't remember anything after that until my first therapy session because their back and forth, their relationship was just so tumultuous and it was so abusive that um, I think as a kid, I think children's brains just kind of block memories out when they're going through something traumatic. So that was my next memory. That is still my next memory. I don't remember birthdays. I don't remember holidays. I don't remember any of that stuff prior to the age of eight. And um, by the time I was eight years old, they had officially split up. Like it was said and done over. Um, and it was just a very difficult upbringing. My mother was never the same. 
um, she didn't take care of herself like she used to. And of course, with growing kids comes the need, of course, for finances and stability. And I remember watching her struggle. I remember the eviction notices on the door. I remember her begging my dad to help her out financially. And he would promise that he would come. And sometimes we would go months without seeing him. My mother also started to become very verbally abusive with me by the time I was 10. She would compare me to him and tell me that I was going to be a failure, just like him. It was it was weird. It was almost like if I was dealing with two people at the same time. My mother would put us in dance class and she would come to our recitals and she would praise us for great grades and for being on the honor roll and for winning at science fairs. And at the same time, if I didn't sit still when she would comb my hair, she would just hit me incessantly over my head with brushes. The older I got, the more physical the punishments got, I guess, because she probably felt like the words weren't enough. Or, But by the time I was 14, I remember this day, she went to hit me with um, what I know still, and I might be wrong, as a police lock. Uh, it's this long bar that I think now is... Uh, illegal because it definitely serves as a barrier for fire emergencies. So if you have this lock, it's like a long metal bar, very dense, and you would put it at an angle in front of your door and then it falls into like a divot and then you would lock it into place. You would move it to the side. That was like our third lock in the house. Um, I remember that she came at me with that bar I don't know what she was going to do, but I know that at that time, the urge uh, uh, of fear and defense took over. And I remember pushing her while she was trying to push me with that bar. I pushed her into the bathtub. And I told her, you're never going to raise your hand at me again. You're trying to kill me. And if you try to kill me, I'm going to kill you first. My teens were spent aimless. I dropped out of high school as a junior, started smoking marijuana, I started drinking. I started hanging out with boys. I didn't want to be a girl. I was convinced that my parents hated me because I was a girl. I wanted to be a boy. My, I saw the way that my father was with my little brother. And I was so jealous because he should have been that way with me. I saw the way my mom treated my cousins and they were boys. And I felt like if I was a boy, maybe my parents would love me. Even, even when I was a teenager, like it was, I was, I was very, very lost. Um, when I was 19, August 8th, I, went upstate to Job Corps. I got tired of feeling lost. Um, 9-11 happened. 
and ironically, I had applied for a job working or wanted to work um, at the World Trade doing security. I had friends uh, that I met through high school that were working there. And when the towers fell, we weren't able to, like, there was no way you were making a landline phone call, at least for the first couple of days. I didn't have, there were no cell phones. At least I didn't have one. It wasn't for, you know, the regular person at the time. And I remember when I spoke to my mom, which was about three days later, she was besides herself. She was like, can you imagine if you would have been hired? Can you imagine? I would have lost you. I would have lost you. My aunt said the same. My grandmother said the same. And um, 11 days later, I found out I was going to be a mom. I remember feeling like if I didn't know why I was here, this is why I was here. So that I can give my kids better. My child was given to me to show me that my place is not where I have where I thought I belonged. And this was my opportunity to make sure that what happened to me, what happened to my parents, didn't carry over anymore. And that was when I felt like I actually belonged. I felt like I had purpose, was in motherhood. For as young as I was, I didn't care that his father wasn't around because I knew even at that age just how how hard it is to grow up wondering why doesn't your parent love you? Why do they make promises that they don't keep? Why do they keep you waiting? Why, why do you have to be compared to someone who obviously is the reason why your other parent is depressed and sad and bitter all the time. I didn't care. I didn't care. My son was my son. My son saved me. And I tell him that every time I get a chance, he really saved me. I just had this feeling that it just has to be different. My son is not going to know what it's like to sit at a door and wait for somebody to come and they just never show up. I'm never going to compare my son to his dad. I will never speak badly about his father. I would never compare him to his father. I would talk to my son. That I knew that my son would know that he is my reason, that he is the reason why I strive every day to be a better person because he deserves that at a, at a minimum. That's all I knew. I knew that I was broken and that I needed to fix myself so that my son didn't end up doing this to his children if he were to have any or it wouldn't permeate into the rest of his relationships. Because even at that time, I was aware that 
something's up because I just keep on putting myself and finding myself in all these situations where I'm constantly hurt. I didn't know then what I know now. So you're at this point in your life where you're going to be a single mom (laughs) and you're going to be working. You're not going to, you're not going to get help from anyone really. And you're going to be trying to improve your life at the same time as far as not just work, but I assume like uh, programs or school, uh, things along those lines. You have to put food on the table. That in itself is an extremely difficult task that so many people who are listening to our show deal with. And for those that don't listen to our show, how difficult that is in itself. And, And now along with this, you have the issues that grew from your childhood and I assume your self-esteem, you're determined, but I assume your self-esteem is not the best and that you have, uh, you know, you've always been compared to someone and you've been involved in this very confusing messaging, specifically with your mom in the sense of you're good, but then you're treated poorly and it's really mixed messaging and that's going to screw up anybody's wiring going forward because you really don't know. You know that a boys are treated uh, better than you are and that there's this unfairness that is going on. So my assumption is that you are trying to be good and being good and standing out in that way is important because you've grew up with, uh, around criminal activity. You grew up with some shadier things going on and integrity for you. My assumption is a, really big thing. And for someone who is leaving the home and coming from nothing and putting their foot in the sand, or I think, I don't know if that's the right term I use, but something along (laughs) those lines where you're kind of saying, okay, I don't have much. I don't have anything really, but I'm a good person. I have integrity. And I'm going to move forward and be determined to be better. It's not that I am able to deal with all of these issues that have happened yet. And as things go forward, eventually I'm going to have to. But you're not, when you're you're someone in your position, that is not something at the top of the ladder uh, of things to do. I mean, first and foremost, you have to survive. And so that's, you know, that's a luxury at that point is to deal with something like that, to be able to talk to someone and, and 
get your own emotions through because now you have someone else, a child who's number one responsibility. And again, in a, in a, in a small way there, you, you, you're, yes, you bring your child into this world, but um, you yourself get put on a back burner a little as far as um, dealing with things that were not dealt with. Would that be fair? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, how do I even, um, how do I even reply to that? Uh, it was definitely, um, difficult. So once I completed my studies at job four, I moved into, you know, my first apartment, it was a two bedroom. Um, I had a little bit of money saved, but I was still a single mother. His father had expressed that he wanted to be a part of his life, which I let him do. And unfortunately, shortly after my son was born, my son's father started um, showing signs of addiction again. I knew that he had suffered from addiction when he was a much younger teenager, but it just wasn't a healthy situation for my son. So I asked my mom if I could move back in. Within a matter of months, I was in EMS school learning how to be a uh, EMT. I completed that successfully in nine months. And I'll never forget this. On the 2nd of May, I got my state license. And on my son's birthday, I got my first EMT job. I started the weekend after that year, his birthday, when he turned one, his birthday fell. I believe it was on a Thursday or a Friday. So his birthday was like a dual celebration. So in hindsight, I've always had to suck it up. I've always had to put it in a box, what we call compartmentalize, and I'll deal with it later. I didn't realize until probably recently just how horrible that not only is for you as a person, person who's experiencing abuse, but how that really affects everything else. So when, you know, I did my pregnancy alone, in the back of my head, I really wasn't expecting for his father to be around because of what I experienced and because I already had it in my head that this is my son. Um, No matter what, no matter what, he is not going to hear, see, smell, feel what I did as a kid. And when I, you know, told my mother that I, you know, needed help, she agreed, but it came with a price. She was not the most understanding. Sometimes she would try to revert back to her old ways. Um, I didn't realize that I had narcissistic parents until maybe like about a year or two ago when I actually started educating myself on narcissistic parents and the whole, you know, your parents are abusive or mother wound, father wound, everything that we now see flooding social media. I wasn't aware that I was uh, experiencing any of that, but, um, in the, in the most confusing part, which a lot of people get really confused about, which is what you experienced is you think that your mom for is a victim because she is a victim of abuse. Yes. And that is really confusing to see the victim, especially of physical abuse as well, right. eventually morph into something that you don't. So it's so hard to 
because you're empathizing with what your mom went through. Right. And your heart goes out to her. And then you have this other thing and you're seeing it and it just really crosses your wires. And as a child, uh, no one knows how to deal with that. No one knows how to compute that. That's right. that's when your computer programming, uh, the program works against itself. Like it's two different things. And that we, you know, people are like computers. If the mm-hmm. programming it gets to be faulty, your computer shuts down and doesn't know what to do. Right. Absolutely. Um, I definitely grew up confused. I didn't understand how my father's verbal abuse would put her out of sorts for days on end. But then she was also just as excitable and, and just as prone as kind of dishing that out onto us because it was me and my younger sister. Um, those We're the only two children that she's had with my father and no one else. And it, it was just confusing to see that and experience that. Like, I think I'm the first time that crossed my mind was probably at the age of 13. Um, she had gotten into an argument with my dad. My father didn't want to pay for my graduation dues for uh, eighth grade. And they had gotten into an argument. He had said something about, it, you know, that she should be working, that she shouldn't be at home, that she shouldn't be doing this, that she shouldn't be doing that. And somehow the argument now involved me I, still to this day I, I don't know how but i just remember overhearing the argument i remember her face i remember the tears in her eyes i remember how overwhelmed she looked how she wasn't able to get a word out and then eventually i was in now her place and now she was the one attacking me when it had nothing to do with me, but I guess because it, it did, because it was in regards to a need that had to do with something that I needed. I guess somehow I must have been the root of that, but that was my whole entire childhood. That was my whole entire childhood, just growing up confused. Um, and even now, still as an adult, I still struggle with sympathizing with her because her mother still to this day, and these women are pretty mature in age. They are above 65. And it's interesting to see this play out in front of you as an adult now who has, you know, the entry-level medical experience that I, I, I have and the knowledge that I have. And to just see this dynamic still flourish, you know, amongst them. I just have to make sure that my borders, my boundaries are very thick. Because if not, I get roped into that and I end up feeling so horrible. I, I feel like a kid all over again. So you're back home with your mom. You become an EMT. Mm-hmm. You, first of all, should be very proud of yourself. And I, and I hope that you were proud of yourself on that day. Cause in your journey, that was, you know, step one. And I assume you were, in a way, kind of gaining confidence in yourself that I can do things. I, I'm going to get there. So after that happens um, and you're with your mom, 
your your life's kind of going forward. Um, when do you meet the person that this story is about? So I didn't meet Jay, and I call him Jay due to uh, his affiliation with a very popular DC character. Um, so it's not his real name? No. Okay. <laughs> no, I find that what folks say is pretty true. Um, kind of finding a title to describe the person is better than utilizing their name because sometimes the use of their name can just elicit more pain and discomfort than what we really would like, especially during the healing process. So Mr. J is actually more fitting. I met him a couple years after I had enlisted in the military. In 2010, I enlisted in the military to be a combat medic. It was the Army National Guard. I finished basic training, had all these hopes that I would be able to kind of transfer that over into the civilian side. Like many people say, their recruiter lied, and unfortunately, I am a part of that uh, that statistic. What I was promised is not exactly what I came home to. But like the adaptive person that I try to be, <laughs> I made it work for me. So um, I ended up working for a very famous wireless retailer who's currently not um, in business anymore. And I was in school. And he happens to walk in, you know, uh, retail, wireless retail is commission-based. So he was handed off to me. Um, it was definitely not a sale. This was a customer service issue in regards to some broken devices, lost devices, misleading miscommunication, misinformation. And he's standing there in front of me for a whole hour. At this point, I had already been single for couple years i want to say at least two years wasn't actively dating anyone but i realized after the military that i need to stop feeling like i am just kind of like floating and getting by and a relationship was definitely not on the table for me at that time i had conceived another child from a previous relationship this was the only relationship i had um prior to mr j um we were engaged and we were supposed to be married. And unfortunately, by the time my now middle child was a year and a half, um, he was unfaithful and I ended the relationship. So I was just pretty much focusing on just my kids, my career, my military contract. Um, at the time, I would go away sometimes for a couple of months on active duty orders to go help out with pre-deployment medical readiness, which was a huge part of my job at the time. And just juggling that, you know, being a single mom, two kids, they're about four and a half years apart. It was a lot. So I definitely didn't want to put a relationship, you know, the whole courting process. I just honestly didn't have the time. So fast forward to Mr. J, our first meeting. He didn't hit on me the whole entire time. In the back of my head, I was like, I can't wait to get this guy away from my desk because the F-bombing and the frustration and the entitlement was just a little overbearing, especially when, you know, you're working commission-based and you're kind of taking up my time with something that I can't help you with. 
So once I was able to satiate his needs, I asked him, so is there anything else I can help you with? He looked over at my hand at the time because of, you know, my date of birth. I had a blue topaz ring on my ring finger. And he said, is that, are you, are you married? I said, no, it's a shoe fly. And he goes, a shoe fly? I said, yeah, it's a shoe fly. It deters dudes from asking me out on dates because they automatically assume because of the size that it's like some, you know, nouveau, weird alternative to an engagement ring. And he was like, so I take it that you're single? I said, very much so. And I'm not really looking. So he asked for my number. I don't know if it was the tattoos or the bad boy attitude or the fact that he would apologize every time he got out of sorts. But I gave in and I gave him my number. We spoke for a couple of days over the phone. We made arrangements to go out to dinner and a movie. Um, he picked me up and his eyes were locked on me the whole entire time, even during the movie. I took him to one of my favorite restaurants. Here's this grown man. He's, at least I felt grown. He was in his 30s. He's telling me about his life. You know, uh, he had been to jail. He got uh, caught with drugs. Construction worker. He does tattoos. He has tattoo licensing. And he's just trying to be the best father that he can for his daughter. That was the line that kind of like reeled me in was the fact that despite the things that he went through with the mother of his um, eldest child, he still was a part of that little girl's life every day. Before work, he would go, take her to school, come back, go to the gym, which I did as well quite frequently at that uh, during that time. And then he would go to work. So. In a lot of ways, we were very similar to each other. I'm a single mom. I'm doing it on my own. I'm effectively co-parenting at this point with my second child's father. We had a great relationship to the point where when he didn't even have money to come pick up my daughter, I would, I would fit the bill. I would, you know, I didn't have a problem making sure they had food, whatever it is that he needed to spend time with his daughter. I was understanding of Mr. J's situation as he was with mine. He was kind of surprised at the fact that I had such a good working relationship with my daughter's father. And I told him I you know, grew up in a home where my parents couldn't be within 50 feet of each other without shooting daggers through each other's eyes at the other person. I don't want my kids to see that. You know, my kids have nothing to do with any ill will, any transgressions, any, you know, pain or just any drama that might exist between two people that had a child and now they just can't make it work with each other. The kid is oblivious to that. The kid really shouldn't pay the consequence, you know, shouldn't pay the price. We did a lot of talking. There were, you know, it's the classic, what now I know as love bombing. <laughs> we spoke for hours over the phone. We would go for walks in the park for hours on end we would binge watch movies and not even pay attention to the movie we'd be talking sharing history with each other he would tell me about his dad 
he would tell, I'd tell him about my dad. He told me about his mother's uh, history of, you know, cancer. And I spoke to him about my mom's history of cancer. That went on for like about a good month. Things, you know, got intimate and I started to develop feelings. I told him, look, I am starting to get feelings for you. And I don't want to get myself hurt. So we're spending all this time. This is great. Where do you see this going? And he hit me with the classic. I just want to see where it goes. I didn't call him after that. I said, okay. I left. I didn't call him. I don't know for how long, but I know that within like, I think before the ending of the summer, this was before the beginning of the summer when I just said, okay, this, this, this is not good. Cause I don't like being up like lost in the wind. This is not good. He texts me. He said, uh, I thought about it. I've been thinking about it and you're right. I shouldn't be afraid to put a label on this. Please can we meet up. Can we talk? And I don't think I let him say too many words before I just like kissed him. And, you know, it was once again, super hot and heavy. I didn't think anything of it. A couple weeks later, I went to his house. I noticed that there were some stains on the sheets. Not grease stains, juice stains. These stains were white. So immediately my head went into the gutter and I was like, what's up with your sheets? That weekend prior, his daughter was there. And, you know, like most kids do, they eat on the bed and I'm sure they, you know, my kids spill things all the time. He got so defensive when I had asked him about those things. He felt that I was questioning him, that I was questioning his integrity, that why am I being so nosy? Why does it matter? I said it matters because you and I are sleeping together. And though you use protection with me, you don't necessarily use it with everybody else. I didn't hear from him. I want to say this time for at least six months. During that time, you know, I tried my best to not really pay attention to it. I didn't really want to date anybody else. I was already enraptured by this man because he was, at least I thought, everything that I wanted. Physically, um, from what I knew, mentally, um, the athleticism, the artistic capabilities, the eclectic taste in music, the eclectic taste in uh, movies. It was like I had, I really, really felt that I had found my soulmate despite all of the red flags that I didn't know were red flags, right? Because I just didn't know. Well, right here you're seeing, you know, you weren't there when your parents met. You don't know the lead up to their meeting. You don't have experience in the lead up to these things where you're right here. You are bonding over shared trauma. Mm -hmm. You <laughs> are uh, finding a common ground when it comes to 
your belief of what your children are to you and him stating the same belief or around the same belief about his children and then all of these things in between his honesty i'm sure about his situation and what he's going through i assume kind of plays into the empathy part of you uh as well and things are you know and once you're hooked and once you kind of state that you like him and that you have feelings for him uh he is able to let his guard down let's say as far as being on his best behavior and now you know he's able to test a boundary even though he might not be on that level of um knowing what he's actually doing like it just might be instinctive in him that okay i'm gonna be this way and then when he needs you back he comes back because that's his need at the time not thinking of you or any of that at the same time so at this point he can when he needs you, he can move back. But then if you say something that he doesn't like, gone. Right. Yep. And, you're, I, and now you're on the ping pong. I was on the ping pong table. Absolutely. Back and forth, back and forth. So months went by. I want to say maybe like about another six months had gone by. Um, and he texts me. He reaches out to me. You know, once again, I'm sorry. I told him, look, I'm not going to text you. We're not going to have this conversation over the phone. I know that you have been with other women. And to be honest with you, I'm so in love with you so quickly. And you haven't even given me a relationship, like a full, legitimate, honest relationship. I'm starting to question whether or not there's something wrong with me. Why is it that I feel like I have to be loyal to you even when we're not together? So if you really are legit about what you said about this whole, you know, you just, you want to talk to me and yes, you want to make this official and you don't want to go through this anymore and this constant back and forth, let's meet up in person. The day before we're supposed to meet up, he sends me a text. This is in 2013. Sends me a text saying that, you know, we're going to have to change it for another day. His cousin, which... Everybody that he knew was a cousin. So at that point, I didn't even know who he was talking about. His cousin had um, graduated high school. I'm like, your cousin graduated high school. Okay. And that they were throwing a party. So he was going to see me the day after that. I was like, all right. Two days go by. Three days go by. Four days go by. A week goes by. I don't hear anything from him. I sent him a text, and in my head, the way I had written this out was a goodbye. Like a, see ya, thank you, but no thanks. I'm not waiting here in the winds for you. His sister reaches out to me. Because his sister at that time, unbeknownst to me, had his cell phone. And she's like, you know, you have no idea what we're going through. I'm like, what? You're right. I don't have any idea what you're going through because I'm not a part of either one of your lives. And that's when she confided in me that during that party, an altercation had ensued with some of the men that were part of the celebrations and some outside individuals. 
and weapons were pulled out. People were hurt. People were injured. And that he was the prime suspect. I got a few phone calls while he was going through processing. And, you know, you can't really have these conversations uh, through lines that are being, you know, tapped into or recorded. So he didn't really get into the intricacies of it. He spent 19 months incarcerated fighting off this, what now became attempted murder charge. During that time, I had decided not to pursue medicine. I was discouraged at the fact that I had signed the military contract and it didn't lead me anywhere. So I felt really defeated. Working in the wireless industry was not where I saw myself at that point. I had really become attached to exercise and training, weight training. I did boxing, kickboxing, calisthenics. um, And I got really, really good at it. My body changed completely. I had like a self-confidence. This is while he was away, while he was incarcerated. I ended up just feeling a lot more at peace with myself and just accepting of myself, my physique more, I think, than ever. And that actually led to a very fledgling, short-lived career in the uh, fitness industry. So I ended up going from training at three different gyms to actually landing a fitness manager position with a very popular gym franchise that still exists today. I kept in contact with Mr. J intermittently during these 19 months. I didn't want to be committed to someone in jail. You weren't committed to me before you went in there and I didn't find, and I didn't feel still to this day, and they were plenty of times when he and I had this argument where he tried to hold this over my head. You didn't commit to me before you went in. We weren't in a committed, stable relationship prior to you committing the offense that you did. I have two small children. I have to look out for their well-being. I have to look out for my own well-being. I've always wanted a career. Never, ever have I deviated from that. And I've always tried to maximize my jobs to the best of my ability in order for me to solidify some form of a career. So when he came out, I wasn't expecting for him to come find me. I wasn't expecting a phone call. I wasn't expecting anything. I didn't even know when he was released. At that time, I was in the midst of that um, fitness manager role. It was going very, very, very well. They had offered me a general manager position that was going to segue um, as far as like the duration. So as soon, one day, the, the day that the fitness manager position would be uh, completed or, or finished, immediately, like it was like an instant promotion because of the strides that I had gained as a fitness manager. He happened to come back ending of October, early November of 2014. And when he came back, the first thing I did was apologize. I said, I'm sorry I wasn't there, but I'm going through my own. And you and I weren't together. I didn't feel that I was obligated to stay there. What you and I had really wasn't the best for me. I felt like you were playing with my emotions because you were too afraid to commit after you you broke up with 
your daughter's mom. And I didn't find this out until much later that their relationship was just as abusive and even more so than the relationship that he and I would eventually have. The difference is she fought back. So if he punched, she kicked. If he smacked, she would spit in his face. That would never be me. And I wish I would have known this prior because I probably, I prob- this put a pop never gone past the first date. But so he comes back, you know, the whole, <laughs> I'm so lucky to have my freedom while I was, while I was away. I had to think about who I was, and what I wanted and what I was doing. And during the off and off, during the off and on time, I had told him, I noticed that he still had affiliations with people that live a certain life that really doesn't align with when you're trying to have a family. I come from a demographic where, unfortunately, the streets permeate the home all all too often in too many ways. And it's sad to say that even though we know the outcome, it doesn't stop it from happening. So you really can't have a street mentality and have street code ethics and apply that to your family, apply that to your home. You can't lead a double life. It just doesn't work. One is going to catch up with you one way or another. And his 19 months away was the culmination of that. His affiliations caught up with him because that's pretty much why he was pegged as the main suspect Um, because of his history, because of what he knew because of his athleticism um, and because of his uh, criminal background. So in the spiel of, I love you, I miss you, you're the one, I, I was blind, I was stupid, I was ignorant, I was afraid. It was like a love story, I felt like, in my head. I was like, wow, this is... <laughs> if you don't know me, you wouldn't believe that these things happen. But I felt that he was being so honest And I had never seen him cry before. And to see a man who's 230 pounds, almost six feet tall, shaking, shaking, literally shaking, like, and and crying, sobbing. It's not just tears coming out. It's, It's full on what I felt was emotion. Like, I felt overwhelmed and I was like, wow, then this guy, I I didn't even think, it didn't even cross my mind that he was like an actor at all. I felt that he was just being genuine. And I've always heard from people that have been incarcerated, jail can do, incarceration can do two things to you. It can either make you a better person or it can turn you into an animal. I thought that what I was looking at was that, I thought I was looking at a man who, had had his home, his apartment, his job, everything taken from him because he couldn't step away from the toxicity in his life. And he was granted a second chance. He was absolved of those charges. Um, He was released on his own. Um, He was released immediately. Uh, The charges were dropped. Witnesses disappeared. And I thought that he had hit like a turning point in his life. And on top of that, this turning point, you're being told all of these things that you always wanted to hear. You had this 
separation of time. And within that separation of time, things can... Yes, you remember the things that happened. But at the same time, it dissipates a little. You're, you don't have it constantly happening to remind it. You mind yourself. And then this happens. And it gives the opportunity for a new cycle to begin. And even though whatever your cycle looked like before, this feels like this fresh start. It feels different. And there's hope. There's this, we've used the term before, you were thinking it's the movies. This is what happens in the movies. And you placed yourself in that feeling of these things that you've always seen, that you've always wanted to happen. Because you deserve a break. You deserve this new beginning. You know you do. You earned it. And you, this thing, this now presents itself. And it's a fairy tale here. And, right. I th- and I think you wrote to me. He was Peter Pan. Yes. And you were a Tinkerbell with a Wendy. Yes. So explain what is a Tinkerbell with a Wendy? Because we know Peter Pan is the boy that never grew up. Right. So Tinkerbell, this is the magic, right? Like without her dust, can't fly. Can't fly at all. Tinkerbell made magic happen. Tinkerbell was the magical element behind the scenes. This is why when Peter Pan started to fall in love with Wendy, it, it kind of like threw her for a trip, right? Where she felt betrayed by him because it seems like Peter Pan only used Wendy for what he needed. He didn't really care about Tinkerbell's needs. As long as Tinkerbell was doing her thing and making that magic happen, that was her place. Wendy, Wendy ended up taking on a mothering type of role, right? Where she was like mother hen, like most older kids are. As an old, as the, as the eldest child for my mom's, you know, my mom's two kids, that was my role uh, as a kid, having to babysit my sister, tutor my sister, help my sister out when my sister would go play with her friends. I would have to go along because my sister could, couldn't go along. I, neither role has freedom. Both Tinkerbell and Wendy both served for different sources of like resources for Peter Pan. And I started to feel like I was either some magical little creature that would help him kind of like get away from reality, right? He would always tell me that I reminded him of like a magical fairy, which I was like, how? You're only like two inches taller than me. I'm huge. (laughs) How am I a fairy? Like, how do you, how do you make this comparison and frame? And then he would also tell me how in some ways domestically, especially in the ways that I would talk to my kids, how I reminded him of his mom and his constant gravitation towards a good time versus dealing with reality 
all those aspects led me to dubbing all the good times as Never Neverland because that's what it felt like. It was like he and I were in our own world. Now, whichever role I played, that all depended on his need. Sometimes I was Tinkerbell. Sometimes I was Wendy. And towards the end, I became Captain Hook. So now that he is out and you guys are back together, I assume uh, that things are at least good for a little bit. Oh, man. With the exception. Oh, boy. Okay. So that was around Halloween. Thanksgiving comes. I introduce him to my brother. I introduce him to my sister. He's coming over. My mom loves him. My grandmother loves him. There was not one argument at all. There was not one argument during that entire time. We would go to the gym almost every day. He would come to my job being that I was still working at a gym. And we were everywhere and anywhere together. We were inseparable. Inseparable. Um, Martin Luther King Day of 2015, my eldest, my son, had a mental crisis. He had an an emotional breakdown. Um, After the police intervened, they recommended that I take him to the psychiatric ED. I took him to a hospital that had a pediatric psych uh, psychiatric department and they immediately recommended hospitalization for what he was presenting with my son did not come back home on a permanent basis ever after that um that took a huge toll on me that affected my fledgling career I was uh, forced to resign by that same gym by that June they were very fickle with why I had to leave um, go to appointments if anyone knows anything about the public health system especially in where I'm from it doesn't exist it's not like it was in the 80s where every hospital had some like psychiatric floor. The upper floors were dedicated just to that. There was such thing as acute and long-term stay. These things are so scarce to the point where it's like they don't exist anymore. It was very difficult to find long-term care for him which is what he needed because they were saying things such as behavioral disorder, generalized behavioral disorder, um, undiagnosed, uncontrolled depression, anxiety, insomnia, all of these things that it's not that I was unaware of them. I didn't see them. I'd come home and my son would be, hi mom, how are you? How was work? Are you going to the gym? And I'd take him to school and he was doing great. My son was always like one of the smartest kids. And I'm not saying not to brag. My son just had this brain, he still has it, where he 
he can sit and he can sit and listen to a lecture and remember what was said. I'm a writer. I have to write it down. I have to see a diagram or I have to see a video, but my memory is really good. My son trumps me when it comes to that. So to hear doctors, you know, listing and just going from top to bottom with all of these things that they're finding, I was like, wait a second. This just evolved overnight. And one doctor even told me very early on, no, this has been going on for a while. You were just ignorant to it. So, of course, dealing with a child that is having their own emotional um, and psychiatric complications comes with a lot of responsibility, especially when you have another child at home and you're trying to juggle a career without any support. Things are bound to just crumble. Things are bound to fail. So the first thing that I lost was my fitness career. Um, never regained it back. Mr. J had offered to, you know, uh, flip the bill. He was like, look, I, I make enough. Your mom's rent is not a lot. My mom wasn't staying where she was, you know, in her apartment at the time. She was living with her current partner. So we had the apartment all to, our, all to ourselves. I've never been without a job. I have worked since I was about 17 years old. At this point, I was 34 going on 35. I took so much pride in seeing my children thrive despite the environment and the circumstances behind my upbringing and even despite all my efforts, the circumstances behind their upbringing. It took a, it took a big piece out of me. I felt like a big failure. And that dip in my self-esteem really did start to affect the relationships that I had around me, especially the relationship that I had with Mr. J. Um, during that time, I was also losing pregnancies. Um, I had gotten pregnant four times and I lost them uh, before two months gestation. So right around the time when you're supposed to hear the heartbeat, um, they never passed that stage of development. Um, and that really started to, that coupled with dealing with my son's conditions, really started to take some of the, the, the beautiful, fancy wrapping paper off of what really was lying underneath. That's when I started to experience intense triangulation between his friends, his sister, and myself. Um, that's when the deprivation, the rejection, that, that was like the first displays of like just blatant gaslighting and mind games. And of course, my current situation with my son was always the default reason behind why I felt this way. Um, and things started to get really toxic really quick. I was battling depression myself at that time. I didn't have a job. My eldest son was struggling in ways that I didn't know how to help him. My family was against the fact that the doctors wanted to give him medication to stabilize his mood. Um, I even argued with some of my family members over that because they felt like I was a bad mom. 
and hearing those undertones coming from people, hearing those things, being treated that way. Like everything I touched, I felt was dying. Anytime I would pay attention to whatever mood he was in, didn't matter what we are, were of the morning it was, it would lead to what felt like days of, of just arguing. Just out of thin air, out of things that we discussed and I thought we had resolved or come to an understanding over maybe a week ago, two weeks ago, the fact that I wasn't around when he was incarcerated was huge. It was so, it, it, it it was brought up by him and not just by him, but by his sister and his friends constantly. And sometimes they would even gang up on me over that. So he would be telling stories about you to them that were kernels of truth. Yes. So he would wrap a lie inside of a truth, throw it out to them. They could be like, yeah. We can see that happening, Absolutely. and then they would attack you over these things and constantly bring it up. Are you believing these things that now you're being told? Do you start to believe them, or are you going? Are you being driven mad? I'm being driven mad, and 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 to the point where it's just like it's it's fight or flight. This is the first time I remember feeling this this fight or flight. So like I had said, I had lost several pregnancies. Some of those were multiples, meaning I was pregnant with what could have been potentially twins. So he would tell his friends like, oh, you don't understand. She's driving me crazy. She's constantly arguing. She's taking out whatever it is that she's going through with her son on me. He wouldn't tell them that when I would cry over the lost pregnancies that he would tell me that I need to get over it. Um, he wouldn't tell them that he wouldn't go with me to have the DNCs done. Going through that process, being put to sleep, signing the forms where they say that, hey, there's a potential that we might perforate your uterus and we might never be able to conceive again. You need emotional and mental and physical support, right? When you're Anytime you go through anything like that. And then he would turn around and tell me I had to suck it up. But he would cry about it with his friends. He would cry about it with his sister. But yet you couldn't share that experience with me at home. You couldn't share that amongst us. That was our experience. Those were our, you know, children that, that didn't make it. Why are you excluding me from your healing process? And why are you not seeing that this is something that we should be healing from together? And of course, I would hear as, you know, the flying monkeys, as, as they're called, I would hear them say things like, yeah, but, you know, you're not his sister. You're not me or you're not his best friend. No, I'm the person that was pregnant and lost it. This is uh, that was the beginning. That definitely was the beginning. And as the relationship went on, you started to deal with emotional and psychological and financial abuse. So what started happening there that was even further than the triangulation and the flying monkeys? 
so shortly after, um, I want to say by May 2016, he and I had already split. At that point, we had had several violent um, arguments, separations, called each other names. My children were present for this. His eldest daughter, which I considered to be mine, was also present for this. And in May 2016, we decided that it was over. August, I went back to school. I went and studied some fields within the allied health industry, completed all of that. He was constant back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, still, despite everything. So in January 2018, about 10 days after New Year's, he reached out, said the usual, but, you know, this time it was, yeah, I've slept with women in the interim while we weren't together. That was me just trying to find a way to not think about you. Hey, you know, I guess what you want to hear when you want to, when you want somebody to admit that they're wrong and they've been fighting it for so long, you know, the admittance always comes much later. We met up, um, as usual at a restaurant, we spoke, we exchanged apologies because I knew that during the time that he and I were back and forth, back and forth, my mental state with what was going on with my son had a huge, huge impact on my behavior in general. And he took culpability, of course, for getting his family members involved and being closed off and this, that, and the third. So we got back together, despite the fact that my friends were like, are you sure you want to do this? Close friends, you sure? Some of my friends even said, I think you deserve better. I support you. I'm there for you. But I don't think this is good for you. As usual, it was great. First six months were beautiful. Because of the uh, wrongful imprisonment, he had received a small settlement from the state, from the federal government for the time that he was incarcerated. We got engaged. Shortly after that, he took me to Puerto Rico to go meet his mother, go meet his family. We got married in November 2018. The baby was born February 2019. And two months before I went back to work from maternity leave, the change in his mental state was the worst I've seen it. And it never was the same ever again. Never. We um, started arguing a lot about money. Of course, at this point, I've already, you know, reached some form of success in my medical career. He was still working in the same place. As I'm sure you know, just like everyone else, when you have a criminal record, it's very difficult to get jobs, very difficult to get in school. It's almost impossible. You're kind of blacklisted from being able to do things to progress and better yourself. So he was constantly hitting walls. At the same time, he wasn't taking the necessary steps to expunge his record. Of course, with a growing family, you have one kid who's about to go to college, one who's a junior, one child who is in uh, middle school, and then now a baby. I'm returning back to work. Now we have added bills, babysitting bills, you know, diapers. So, um, I was breastfeeding at the time, which 
he was against. Um, and I just found that whatever I brought home financially just wasn't enough. Um, I started noticing that he was buying frivolous things like action figures, constantly buying uh, T-shirts, um, T-shirts that had to do with like cartoons and things like that, like comic books, um, buying art supplies. I would have to remind him when bills were due. And sometimes that would ensue an argument and the bills wouldn't get paid. Things would be paid off late. Um, I was in college and I dropped out because he wouldn't watch the baby. That's when it first started to dawn on me that this individual had a, a tendency to sabotage things. That was the first time I thought that. Like, is he doing this to me because he's jealous of the fact that I'm progressing and he's not? Because he was always the majority earner, right? Or we always earned the same as far as like per hour. At this point, when the baby, uh, when I was returning back from maternity leave, I was making slightly more than him. Not a considerable, not a considerable amount, excuse me, but a couple dollars more. And I never threw this in his face because no matter what, I treated him as an equal, but I wasn't treated as an equal. Um, he would tell me that he didn't have money for things, but yet he would come home with boxes full of things that he ordered. And it's like, well, if you would not have ordered this, you would have had money for your portion of the light bill, half of the cell phone bill. You know, this month you said you were going to take care of the babysitting fees. You were supposed to take care of this week's supply of diapers. Um, I need freezer bags for my breast milk. And it was just a constant battle to try to find financial equality between he and I at that point. Um, I also noticed that his sleeping pattern was horrible. Granted, it's a three-month-old, but I was the primary and sole caregiver. At that point, he would even get upset with me if I asked him for help um, with bathing her. So I had developed chronic rheumatoid arthritis within 72 hours after giving birth. And he, like a lot of other people did at that time, that I didn't have arthritis, that it was all in my head. When in actuality, I do, and I still do, even now. And at this point, with the triangulation that had gone on, things being the kernels of truth that were happening, your... You know, you came from this career that was going well in the fitness industry. He comes back into your life and that version of you is gone. He's now nitpicking at you. Yes, you are making more money, but now he is showing the Peter Pan in him to the point of not being responsible once you've really taken the mother role as a whole as you are this responsible person right. and, and and you're in charge of everything and that gives him leeway to start spending and 
other ways because he knows that you're not going to let this fail. Right. And you're in a real tough spot. I mean, you have a whole family besides him to support. Right. So your mental health at this point and now with your regular health issue, physical health issue, your mental health issues at this point, you have to be at a low. I was. Yeah. I, I really, really was. Um, when I went back to work two months later, um, at the time, I had a really good relationship with one of my coworkers. She had come here to visit the baby uh, once or twice while I was on maternity leave. Some of our arguments at that point had gotten violent. Uh, violent as far as his accusations, the things that he would say, and his threats to cause harm. Not just to himself, uh, he would slam doors, punch walls. And mind you, our child right now is still just pretty much an infant. And um, I confided in a co-worker what was going on. And... Um, it was nice to have someone that I could speak to that was unjudgmental, right? Because I felt like when I spoke to my friends, though they did show me sympathy um, and they did show care and concern and their ultimate concern was whether or not I was safe, I did know that my friends had a bias, which in hindsight, they had all the right to because they were able to see what I wasn't. They saw what I wasn't able to see. They were able to look at the situation from a perspective that I was, I hadn't reached yet. So I kind of kept a lot of things to myself and I didn't share anything until it became problematic or until I felt like I was in danger. And I also did that out of shame. I didn't tell my mom a lot of things. I dealt with a lot of things. Here I am. My body's nothing like what it was before. I have this baby. I'm finally in the medical industry. I don't want to give this up. It has to be a way to make it work. That's when I really started to to just deal with the uh, stonewalling as they call it, where I'd be ignored for days, sometimes a week or two, where he would go without talking to me. He would shower the kids with an excess of affection. He would be on the phone with his friends laughing and having a good time. And he wouldn't even so much as look at me when I would hand him his dinner plate and say, thank you. And I dealt with it because I didn't want to be judged. I didn't want to be a single mother. I didn't want to give my kids another broken home. I didn't want to lose what I had. But that didn't last very long. Before my daughter turned two, he, um, attacked me in front of her. We had been arguing incessantly for months. Um, I had gotten a promotion at work. I became an ED technician. 
meant more money. It meant longer hours, shorter schedules, meaning I worked only three days because I worked 12 and a half hour shifts. Um, I remember when I got the job and I called him excited. He didn't even say congratulations. A week after I started that job, uh, stay in place was executed for our state here. And um, those pressures coupled with the pressures of an abusive relationship really put me in a place where I had to look at everything that I had endured, how I contributed to it, how I actually learned how to abuse my abuser towards the end, how I was using his tactics to get back at him so that I didn't feel so helpless. How I was setting such a poor example to my children. How I was putting myself in danger. So not only was outside unsafe at that point, but the only place that was supposed to be my refuge was also unsafe. And it just wasn't unsafe for me. It was unsafe for everyone, even for him, if he didn't even realize it. So I can't even, what led up to that event was he had had to triangulate me again with his sister over some drama that occurred with a neighbor who ironically has past ties with his sister. His nephew was involved in this whole ordeal and I had put my foot down completely. So this was back in September of 2020. He attacked me in front of our then year-and-a-half-old child, almost two-year-old child, in November of 2020. He had called his sister that morning, told his sister to come here so that she could set me straight. And I lost it. I had no fear. No fear whatsoever. He constantly told me at that point that I wouldn't have what I have if it would not have been for him. He would call me a bad mother in front of my children. He would be so charismatic. Everybody else. I would go to his job and his tenants, because he works at a very high-class building, would tell me, you are so lucky to have someone like this in your life. And I remember feeling like, why can't you love me the way you love everybody else? Why do you hate me so much? He was starting to show his disdain for my for kids, for our kids. They would show him drawings and he would criticize them. They would talk to him about his day and he would make jokes. He would start gaslighting. He started ignoring my 14-year-old. I found the condom inside of one of her pants. He used to do our laundry. This was within that, the last three months before the first violent 
um, before the attack. And uh, I didn't believe that my 12-year-old was, uh, I, I knew it wasn't her. Super shy, very reserved, doesn't, didn't really talk to anyone at the time. And the wrapper was gold, and the size that it stated the condom was, was the size that I would get when he and I first dated. I fought him for months over this. Like, this was just one thing to just add to just a plethora of arguments and disagreements and just things that would cross my mind that I felt like I couldn't trust my thoughts. I felt like I couldn't trust what I saw. I felt like at this point, like maybe I am crazy. Maybe what I say isn't coming out. Maybe I'm thinking it in my head and it's not coming out. I started to lose connections with like my friends I just shut myself down and I put myself in a, in a cave because I was just so skeptical of am I losing my grip on reality like is what he's saying true <laughs> so that morning November. He had uh, called his sister, like I said. He told his sister that I was afraid of him. He literally tried to say that I wouldn't fight his sister. And I don't know if she heard me. But at that point, I said, you can bring whoever you want here. I dare you. They're not going to make it out this door. The baby was present. I had already contributed way too much to the situation. I was going to let him vent and break and do whatever out here in the living room, exactly where I'm sitting at now. So I took the baby and I went back into the bedroom and I closed the door. He proceeded to follow me into the bedroom. And he said, I should smack the S, the poop out of you. And I told him, you, won't, you wouldn't dare. I didn't raise a hand towards you. I'm not playing this violent game with you. I gave you this disclosure when we first decided to get back together in 2018. I am not that same person anymore. I'm not going to go back and forth with you. I'm tired of the verbal abuse. I'm tired of the head games. I'm tired of feeling like my emotions are on strings, like they're marionettes, and you play with them however you feel like it. If you don't like it, you can go. And I went and I sat down in the living room. He sat down next to me and I was compelled. I don't know why I did this. I knelt. I just... I knelt down on his feet. I grabbed his knees. And I told him, you love me too much to hit me. 
And when I stood up, he stood up with me, and that's when he smacked me. I was stunned. And then the next thing I knew, he had me on the couch with his forearm up against my neck. And I remember hearing my little one in distress in the background. And I just remember thinking to myself, don't look. Just don't look. Whatever you do, don't look. Don't look in his eyes. Because I did not want to give him the pleasure of seeing me struggle. When I told him I couldn't breathe, took his elbow, took his forearm off of my neck. I went to go walk away. And that's when he grabbed me by my hair. At the time, my hair was very long. It was two inches above my waist. He pulled out clumps of my hair. He left me with ball spots. I had a bruise on my cheek from the smack. I had marks, bruises on my neck. I went into the bedroom with the baby. I called the police. And they came. They escorted him out. Arrested him. I got an order of protection. He stood away for seven months. I didn't reach out to him at all. Things were peaceful. I went to work. I took care of my girls. My son was finally out of uh, one of the, the boarding school, the only boarding school that would take him. He was doing very well on his own. He was off of medication. He was just going to therapy once a week. He's still thriving, thank goodness. Everything was peaceful. I even got a car because of the way transportation was out here after COVID. It just wasn't safe to travel with little ones on the bus or the train. And um, everything was great. The order of protection was never renewed due to lapses in the court and the uh, DA that was assigned to the case as well. She kind of let that fall through the cracks. So once the order was over, he reached out via Pinterest. No, <laughs> mind you, because I had blocked him on any other platform. I had, I had blocked him via email. I blocked him via text. I blocked him on WhatsApp. I blocked him in every possible way that he could reach out to me. I even blocked him on social media. He comes back into the picture. He reaches out again, asks me how the baby's doing. He wants to see the baby. Dada was her first word. So it just happened to coincide that she was asking for her father more actively during that time prior to him resurfacing. And at first it was just him coming or we would meet him outside and he would see the baby just so that she could, you know, reacclimate herself to him. Like I said, I don't believe that the children should have to pay for the wrongdoings of the parent or the inability for the parent to be a part of each other's lives without that affecting the kids negatively. So 
I allowed it. Um, of course, conversations about what had happened would take place. And at first, they would start off very nonchalant, very neutral in tone. And then when my opinion, of course, didn't align with his, it was just, it was like the conversation would just have to end. I would just shut down and I wouldn't participate any further. So at that point I had been already burnt out health-wise. Um, I found out around that time that I don't have, I don't, I'm lacking cartilage in my left hip and in my left knee. Um, I am too young for a hip revision or a hip placement as per my medical team still. So they had recommended a change of job. My current employer was not willing to transfer me to a department where I would be a bit more sedentary than what I was in my current position. My current position required a lot of physical activity. Um, anyone that has ever worked in an emergency department in a medical capacity knows that you can go from being bedside, assisting a patient with everything from toileting to obtaining you know, blood labs, urine labs, uh, specimens. And at the drop of a dime, everybody stops and you have an emergency that rolls in and you can be doing CPR for a good 40 minutes. Anyone that has ever worked in the emergency medicine field knows just how strenuous, not just the hours, but mentally, how that takes a toll on you on top of physically. And then working in emergency medicine during a pandemic is definitely comparable to wartime medicine. Hands down. Because you are just that hypervigilant all the time. And um, it just took a toll on me um, physically. I was ready to migrate into something a little bit more, quote unquote, cushy. I got my teaching license finally after a year or so of deliberation with the state. So I was, I am a, I'm a licensed allied health teacher for adults. Once I had gotten that definitive answer from my employer and my rheumatologist kind of like just sticking to his guns, like if you don't change jobs, you are going to be bed bound for the rest of your life. I had to have a conversation with my ex-husband, with Mr. J, kind of proving to him now that I had like the medical documentation, like this is what was going on with me as soon as she was born, that everyone around me kind of like downplayed. Um and really didn't give me the time to heal at all. So I don't know if it was guilt. I don't know if it was him wanting to come back into the picture full force like before, or maybe it was a culmination of all of that, plus my fear of once again, just not being able to do this on my own, despite me knowing that I was resourceful and you know I have the means. We decided to give our marriage one last shot before finalizing divorce. That lasted six months. As usual, the first three months were great until I discovered that he was compulsively masturbating to porn while at work and while he was here at home while I was at work with my daughters. And that was the final nail in the coffin. Two months after I made that discovery, that's when he threatened to shoot us 
he tried once again to resort to the love bombing. But at that point, at that point, I already said enough is enough. 10 years. 10 years. And the funny part is that when I reached out to you this week would have been 10 years that I would have uh, known this individual. So I am, my story is not, my story is unique to me because it happened to me. And though the severance is fresh, when I found out that he was compulsively masturbating, despite the fact that other, you know, like there wasn't really anything wrong. It just added on to my speculation of there is something here that is overlooked. There has to be something psychiatrically wrong here. And it took for him to walk himself into an ED after he threatened to shoot me and my girls. And he was lucky enough to find a doctor that actually cared. And they reached out to me in the overnight and they said, well, we're, we speculate, you know, Mrs. J, that your husband is suffering from impulse control disorder. There's a potential for PTSD here. We do suspect that there is uncontrolled depression and anxiety. There also might have been periods of what they call explosive or intermittent explosive disorder which is fits of rage for the smallest amount, for the smallest reason that can extend a particular period of time. It can almost appear to be nonstop. The impulse control disorder comes from individuals who either have family members that um, have this, um, people that grew up in homes that were domestically abusive, which he did, um, having alcoholic or drug addicted parents, which he did, being abused as children, which he was. The separation doesn't hurt because I can't tell you how peaceful I am, how peaceful my home feels, how good it feels to hear my daughter singing when she's taking a bath again. The good mornings from my little one when she wakes up in the morning. My little one was even starting to show signs of distress and anxiety and these explosive, you know, what we call tantrums that, that I had to take her to see a psychologist, a, a child psychologist, to see if they can help me with parenting skills. Maybe I'm not patient enough. Like, the, you know, most children are headstrong. This is the age when they start to become aware that no has power. That's why they say no to everything. <laughs> I, I didn't know if I was being too rigorous. I just wanted to be a better parent in light of the fact that my little one saw what she saw. And I'm hoping that it doesn't become a memory. I'm hoping she doesn't remember any of this stuff. I would prefer to her to have memories of mommy loving her, and baking cookies and making a mess and dancing and, and, and painting with mommy and seeing daddy on her own. 
than for her to remember what violence feels like, to even attach smells to it, for it to affect her social skills later on in life. I don't want my 14-year-old to be afraid of people. I don't want to see my children in abusive relationships when they get older. I would take what I have now over anything else. Even if that means that I would not have experienced any of this. One, I wouldn't have my little rainbow baby, my smallest one. And I wouldn't have the experience that I have now. I wouldn't know where I went wrong, where things went wrong, where my parents were wronged, where their parents were wronged. I wouldn't be aware of the fact that despite what media and the internet says, inherited trauma, intergenerational trauma is real and it exists. And like any other disease, it morphs as is, as it is inherited from one bloodline to the next, from one generation to the next. My great-great-grandparents' civil unrest that they experienced in their countries led to anxiety. That anxiety trickled down to their children. The neglect and the need to go work and leave your children with family members left them with they had to trust people blindly, and unfortunately, they were taken advantage of. That's why there's so that the history of physical, sexual, mental abuse is so prominent in my family because it just has gotten worse as it's traveled down the bloodline, and it has to stop with me. My kids are not going to inherit this. My grandchildren are not going to inherit. It has to stop. It really, really does. And I'm going to make sure that it does. And that's why I'm here today. Every day I, I, I'm kinder to myself than I was the night before. If I didn't feel like I was kind enough to my daughters, I'll reflect and see what was festering in me. I sleep <laughs> uninterrupted now. I listen to whatever music I want, wear what I want. I haven't let my hair grow back since it was pulled out in clumps. Of course, not all of it, but I'm excavating through the layers that I had to put on to endure and survive. And I'm getting back to who I am and realizing that she was there all along. She was just covered, covered in useless layers. And I'm not surviving anymore. Day by day, I thrive. I'm supposed to start working again, finally, after losing my job due to this, because I couldn't return to work and leave my daughters in the care of someone who was just 
giving into their impulses, regardless of who was around. And I'm grateful that my 14-year-old doesn't, I tried to ask if she was aware of anything weird going on while I wasn't home. And she said, no, I didn't notice anything weird and I didn't probe any further. <laughs> I didn't want to bring that awareness to her. Mental health, navigating mental health, especially after or during still, because who knows where we are with this pandemic. I'm on a waiting list. I'm very specific. I know exactly the type of help that I need. I need someone who is specialized in dealing with individuals that are coming from not just domestically abusive uh, partnerships, but um, individuals who actually have experienced abuse as children. Um, Do you know what's amazing about what you've done today? It's you're here to, you know, you're telling your story, you're putting it out there you're at this point where you're determined to put an end to your own family trauma. But what you've done today is you've given inspiration to others and validation to others' experience or experiences that they went through that they don't know how to put an end to their generational trauma. And today you gave those people a hope because of your strength, because of how brave you were today, how brave you were the whole way through to those people. And you just aren't putting a stop to yours today. You're doing it for others and other people's lives and your experience that you went through and how terrible it was is going to help someone else come to the same conclusion or point that you're at right now. And someone else's family is going to stop right there. And you did that. Thank you. You know, and Thank you. it could be someone in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. <laughs> it can be someone in London, England in Stockholm, Sweden. You know, that's how many people listen to the show. You know, you just didn't touch someone in your neighborhood or in your family. You touched someone that is from somewhere at all these different points in the world. And you did that. And you should be really proud of yourself for, because it was so difficult what you did today. And you did it and you did a tremendous job. And you should just be really proud of yourself. So if you, if no one has told you that in a long time, everyone right now is giving you a really big hug and thanking <laughs> you for what you did today. Thank you. And I'd like to thank you, Brandon, for taking your time and, and having this platform for people that have experienced abuse of all types. I've listened to quite a few podcast of yours leading up until today and um some of the stories that i heard touched me you know to the point of tears because it's a rarity to have someone 
who wants to provide a platform for this, who's actually putting it in people's faces like this is what it is. This needs to be heard. People need to pay attention to this. And you have no idea how grateful I am to you for this. This is a part of my healing process. And I am indebted to you for allowing me to just get this out. And you're right. You are. This is the first time I've told my story from beginning to end with no filters and no shame. And um, it feels really good. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm trying not to cry myself. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so th- this is usually the part where I ask you for your words of wisdom. What would it be? Some folks call it intuition. Some say it's that gut feeling. I say that it's the words of your soul. I whisper to you when something isn't right, when something just doesn't fit. Some people call it God. Some people call it, you know, nature, the gods. When life does not want you in a certain place, it will put reasons in front of you. And I think that we ignore it so much sometimes because We want what we want, especially when we come from places and situations and and our story is that we've gone without or we've had such a hard time finding or we're just at a a point of, of questioning in our lives. Know your worth, even through the hardest of times. And don't let anyone, anyone anything inspire you to question that you are less than what you really do deserve ever and if you ever find yourself in a situation like this get out your friends don't support you get new ones and i know that sounds so irrational but there is there are systems there's support systems in place that can help that will help, that will support you, even if you have to start off alone. And that's okay, because this is your journey. This is nobody else's journey. Your support system, if you don't have it when you start off, it'll come. Tell people, because you need to be safe. We're conditioned to feel like nobody cares. We're conditioned to believe that we're crazy. And that what we say makes no sense. That was conditioning to keep you complacent, to keep you where you best suited somebody's needs, whether it be your parent, a spouse, anyone. That is not where you belong. Please leave. There is no, it it can't get any lower. If you feel like it can get worse, 
You can't. Once again, that's conditioning to make you believe that if you venture out on your own, if you speak up, if you stand in your truth, that you're going to fail. You're not going to fail. You're not. That's the only thing I have so far. Well, Brooke, we're here. We're at the end. And I'm sure for you and I, we're still going to be talking for a while. And I just really want to thank you for being here again and sharing your story. Thank and, you. And being part of what we're doing. And as I said before, you changed lives today. So a really big thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you so much. And for those of you that want to be a guest on our show like Brooke was today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's the button that says Guest Form. You click on that button, takes you to our Guest Form page, and just fill out our Guest Form after you read the instructions or send us instructions or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Also at our website, if you need support. And Brooke is now part of our support group. If you need to be in that support group, which is our very own safe social network. Is that confusing? Did everything I say right there uh, confuse you? Because confuse you? it sounded confusing in my head right now. But we have our very own safe social network. So if you go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. You click on that button. You can join our group. In that group, we have our very own forum boards. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. We also have episodes that never made it to air, ad-free episodes. And if you just want to support our show, support our show by just joining our support group. It helps us out a lot. And... What else? If you need even more support, you can go to our friends at domesticshelters.org. So if you need information on shelters, local resources, go to domesticshelters.org. If you need articles and resources, go to domesticshelters.org because they have an extensive library there. It is a free tool to access. They want to help you heal and move forward. So please do go to domesticshelters.org. Org. And once again, I want to thank Brooke for being a guest and letting it all hang out and sharing her story. It's an important story to tell. I just want to big thank, say a big thank you once again. And now, from myself and Brooke, we hope you have a good night.